Ladies and gentlemen, it is showtime. Please welcome the team of the Fulhamish Podcast. It's the Fulhamish Podcast, your independent voice of Fulham FC. My name is George Cooper and welcome to the show. What a crazy week it has been for Fulham fans. We had that anxiety-inducing deadline day, Jao Paulinia's day trip to Munich, Iwobi's seven-hour medical, the death of our beloved ex-chairman Mohamed Al-Fayed. That was followed by a drubbing by City and Marco officially being one bad refereeing decision away from going full Travis Bickle on Stockley Park. With me today to unpack the box of frogs that is Fulham Football Club. He's back. It's Don Betts. Hello, mate. Daniel Cook is also with me. How are you doing, sir? Hi, Coops. How are we doing? And welcome back, Paul Cooper. How are you doing, sir? Thank you so much for joining. I was just wondering if you're, I know your comedy creation, Martin Mucklow, is a Swindon fan, but if he were to be a Fulham FC fan, what do you reckon he'd make of the last week supporting the club? I don't know. I think he'd uh, go around there, visit the chairman and challenge him to gypsy rules, you know, boxing. So. <laughs> Give him a piece of his mind. Yeah, absolutely. Direct yeah. is his style. Can I just say, sure. Martin would absolutely batter Tony Khan. There's, there is, there's no competition yeah. there. He's <laughs> not his kind of guy. Yeah. No. <laughs> absolutely. Albeit the wrestling, I, I guess there'll be a little bit of talk, but he'll be talking about Les Kellett and people like that from the ITV days, you know. <laughs> Dan, let's get on to, we, we have to get out of the way, so let's get on to the, the Manchester City defeat. Uh, I believe you've got some three-word reviews for us, if you wouldn't mind kicking things off. I do, I do. I dipped into Instagram quickly for a little bit, which I rarely do, uh, but there are a couple of really good ones on there. I had Samuel Stone with depleted, cheated, defeated, which I thought was a really nice summing up. And Teddy Bealby with big ream bias which again, you know, I think we were all feeling that that horrible three-word phrase, but also delighted for Tim to score at the Etihad. Who'd have thought? Uh, and then a couple from Twitter. We had Colm Bugler, who's always great, with absolutely bloody varsicle. And then Louis JW and Richard Bamber both found the positives in yesterday uh, with no red cards and finished with 11 as Fulham, you know, potentially surprisingly, given the uh, penalty, finished with 11 players for the first time since the first day of the season, which is, you know, you've got to look for the positives. And finally, he's one of our own. Farrell Monk gave us what I thought was brilliant. VAR City Blues, which I think is, is very, very good. I mean, it was just it was just such a deflating day, really. And I'm sure we'll come on to the main talking point that is on the minds of every Fulham fan. But before we get onto that, I just wanted to have a little talk about the uh, the team selection. So Marco started with a midfield trio of Pereira, Kenny and Reed. I mean, obviously TC went off within 15 minutes and Dom, you have to say we're looking very light in midfield at the moment. What were your thoughts when you saw the team sheet come out? Well, I wasn't expecting Palini to play at all. So, I mean... That was probably the midfield we were going to go with. But yeah, I've, I've been saying we've been light in midfield since I think start of last season. And we didn't really improve in there in the in transfer deadline day, which I found found strange. I know Awobi can play in the midfield, but for me, I've always seen Awobi as a wide man. But when I saw the mid- midfield, I was like, 
right, it's City away. I've seen us lose here <laughs> a billion times and wasn't wasn't too hopeful. But I, to be fair, I, th- I thought we started the game quite well. I thought we we created quite a few chances. Um, and but for me, yeah, I just think we've been left too light it, after the transfer window. I think the team lineup just showed that. Yeah, yeah. There's lots of holes. We're looking very threadbare. I mean, I want to. I thought though for the opening spell, we did really well to nullify City. We frustrated them. I thought Harrison Reed did an excellent job in breaking up play in the midfield. We never really let them hit their stride. And I want to talk about on the 18th minute the Ruben Diaz potential red card. Paul Wilson's through on goal, and you can clearly see in the freeze frame Ruben Diaz has his hand around Wilson's neck, pulls him down. If that's the other way around. And you got Tim Bream doing that to Haaland. That's a red card and a free kick to City. No, surely. Hundred percent. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think uh, the referee and VAR had laid out their case straight away there. You know, um, and obviously we saw it later on. Yeah, definite red card and free kick. I mean, how many times is this going to happen? And we're going to come on to the uh, to the VAR decision in a bit. But I mean. When you think about the unlucky decisions that have gone against Fulham so far this season, we've not had one of those kind of go in our favour. We've had that clear handball that should have been a penalty at Everton away. We've had the dive from Visser in the penalty area um, that led to Reem's dismissal and the penalty against Brentford. Bassey getting booked for time-wasting when he was waiting for Nketi to leave the box. And then, like, not stopping the game while Bassi was injured in the same game, which led to the goal uh, away at Arsenal. And then, obviously, the VAR, which I said we'll come on to. It's just, it's becoming infuriating. Dan, like, how like how do a club like Fulham try and counteract this? It's just, it's just there's got to be a point where something's got to be done about this because it's costing us points and the financial implications are insane. VAR is in place to try and stop these kind of things happening and yet it's just causing more controversy what's what's the solution like what can we do or do we just have to like take it on the chin time and time again i really fear for marco's blood pressure here oh i i, I genuinely think we're one more of these from actually just storming off the pitch one day like it like i it was i think we were close to it yesterday i think we were close to a point where the players on the halfway line were remonstrating with the referee. Marco was in the technical area with the assistant referee. And you just it just felt like we were nearly at breaking point. And I I, I honestly I don't I don't have the answer. I really don't. And it's I'm always wary of like the big team bias shouts. Because I'm never a hundred percent certain that you know there's a, a huge amount of truth behind it. There is definitely a case though, I think, for Referees are clearly reticent, and it's been said, you know, Mike Dean has really thrown referees under the bus by by speaking the truth about it. Where the VAR officials are really, really don't want to send the referee to the monitor because they don't like doing it themselves. You know, a referee doesn't like having to run across the pitch over to the monitor to check his decision and admit that he was wrong. And so VAR just seems to never intervene at the moment. And Howard Webb's come in and tried to improve. VAR and make sure that it's not re-refereeing a game. But there are moments when you do need to re-referee a game because decisions are wrong. And I, I think the whole reason for VAR to have that secondary look is so that you can tell the referee, just go and have another look at this because ultimately it's your decision, but this is a big decision. So you want to make sure you get it right. 
And I think any referee really should want to make the right decisions, not what he thought was the right decision when he first saw it. So, for example, for that Harry Wilson one, that's a big decision. It could be a red card 20 minutes into a game of football. Go and have a look and make sure that you're, you know, you're absolutely confident that you're, that's not a foul, that's not a red card. Otherwise, what is the point in VAR? If it's just there to make you know, real howling errors that are absolutely wrong, then it's not really serving much of a purpose and it doesn't seem to even be doing that at the moment. I don't get it. Yeah, it's despicable. It really is. I mean, as I said, Fulham did really well. We, we nullified City's threat. We frustrated them. We, uh, I'm not <laughs> for a second saying that we were the better team, but we really kept them at bay. That is until the 30th minute. Um, Alvarez goal. I mean, it was pretty clinical. It seemed that Haaland kind of scuffed the shot, which kind of maybe have wrong-footed our defenders. But again, if keeping the Wolves at bay uh, against City is 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 no sort of uh, mean feat. And I, I feel like most of us would have thought, oh well, okay, that was fun while it lasted. Here we go. Until who else? <laughs> but the legend that is Tim Ream popping up with a goal. Dom, what what were the scenes like in the away end when uh, when Tim popped up? Yeah, it was great. I don't know if if many people have done City away, but it's it's mainly ninety minutes of just the City fans goading you. <laughs> that's that's pretty much what Man City away is. So it was great to get the goal straight after that, but everyone was sort of confused. Everyone was sort of just asking around who scored because <laughs> obviously the ball gets played across, and obviously Tim Ream's there after Edison sort of parries it. But yeah, it was great scenes for though for that sort of minute, and then yeah, it was. <laughs> And then we thought, oh, we're back in the game here. If we can get this to half time, then who knows what can happen in the second half. And then, you know, it's but it's also good to see that our our we're we're getting good at set pieces. Like I know we were good at them last season, but that's what now two two games in two, if you're not including the Spurs uh, Cup game, that we, we've scored a set piece away at a top six, top four side. So I think it's it's showing that Marco Silva is clearly working on these sort of things in training, and then I was happy going in. I was like, oh, I'll go get I'll go get a pint now, and then looked down from the concourse and saw Manuel Akanji just sort of standing in front <laughs> standing in front of Burnt Leno and was just waiting for VAR to intervene. I mean, I I don't have words to describe what everyone's reaction was in the ground because everyone was like, oh yeah, we. Everyone was just assuming that we were just waiting for VAR to rule out that second goal, and then it somehow got given. I'm, I'm, if Mike Dean on Soccer Saturday is saying it shouldn't be a goal, then I think that's the only marker you need, really. Yeah, it was. We were watching it. I was watching it with my little brother. And we were like, oh, that's fine. Don't worry, we'll get rolled out. Everyone's like, convinced, like, oh, he's, look, look, he's stuck his leg out. It may have even come off him. There's no way that, what, what, what? I mean, Paul, how did you react to, to that incident in particular? Just with horror, I just couldn't believe it, you know, and it just sucked, but it sucked the life out of me. Uh, and so the players and and Charlie texted me and said, you know, oh, here we go again. You know, I mean, it was just, I mean, you're kind of lost for words. It's just unbelievable. And I do think there is that bias. I think there's, you know, that financial thing and the referees and the VAR people are just terrified of doing anything against the big, the big, the big teams. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's, it's clear there is an agenda. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you got to surely think, Paul, that going into halftime, one all after a solid performance, you know, it's like, it, it, there's very little argument that, that that changed the course of the game. Yeah, c- completely. And we had a good first half and City were looking pretty ordinary. And, you know, quite a lot of the time, we, as you say, Harrison Reed broke up their play. Uh, Robinson anticipated and, you know, cut out some passes and, you know, counter-attacks look really good. Um, and then it's just, yeah, it had a massive, you know, you just, it had a massive effect on the second half. I'm not saying that we would have won, but, you know, we were kind of, because, you know, we, we were equal to them, that, that's for sure. But that comes and it just sucks the bloody life out of you. You know, the players and I, you know, and, and how does Silver motivate them for the second half after that? really difficult yeah yeah I mean Marco I believe did Marco get a yellow card nope did he not nope. I'm, I think I, I honestly I think there was an acceptance from the refereeing team on the pitch at that moment when they saw it that actually I don't think they were too confident in the decision of VAR and I think they actually just decided that Marco Silva if you're going to book him for it when they're not entirely confident it was the right decision it makes things worse. I think Marco did no less than he has done in the first three games of the season where he did get booked. I think if anything, this was the angriest we've seen him and quite rightly, but they didn't book him. And I think that is almost like an admission of guilt Mm. because he was losing his head. And the fact that they didn't book him says a lot, I think. Yeah. I mean, put simply, if Akanji's not there, Bertrand saves it. I mean, it says everything that Erling Haaland came out after the game saying... If it was Manchester City, he'd be absolutely fuming. Yep. What more? What more needs to be said? If he's come, if if a Manchester City player is coming out doing an interview saying, "Oh, if that was against us," I'd be absolutely fuming because it's clearly offside. <laughs> I just, I, 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 I'm just getting sick and tired of the officiating in this league. I think, I think it's just the way VAR is used in the Premier League. Is, it's, it's not. I, I, I'm obviously not a fan of VAR in general, but the way VAR is used in the Champions League, Europa League, Europa Conference League, you don't have these sort of situations. Everything gets sort of sorted quite quickly, whether it's offside or whether it's a foul in the box or whatever. But it's just, VAI itself is terrible, from my opinion, anyway. But it's just, the, the way it's used is it's even worse in the Premier League. No. It's, it's such a shame as well, Coops, because when you talk about where we were going into half-time, that header from Nathan Ake was City's second shot of the half. So they had two shots in the first half and ended up with two goals out of it. I think you would have to look through quite a lot of games to find a team who has managed to limit City to two shots in an entire half. Like that is that is like so much praise deserved from this Fulham team. And on like the completely legal stream I was watching yesterday, there was so much praise from the, the commentary team as well. You know, they, I, I was I was sitting watching it with my partner, and I said to her quite early on, "Ah, oh, we're going to get slated today by the commentary team because I could just see how the game might pan out that we would sit pretty deep, we'd concede early, there'd be a bit of nothingness in the game, and we get criticised for for not trying to do anything." But actually, there was so much praise because we were so organised, we had a clear plan, we had a serious press where it was every time. It was on one side of the pitch. We'd overload that side. We'd make it difficult for City to to shift it across onto the other flank. We were a really organised unit. And if it isn't for like one lapse in concentration for the first goal, you know, that feasibly that half could have gone. We could have gone in at nil nil. Uh, we were 
brilliant. And I I think as most Fulham fans don't give a toss about what happened in the second half. Yes, there are errors in there. You know, it's a poor bit of defending from Tim Ream. There's a poor bit of defending from Issa Diop. But really, I don't like who can blame them. Like, how how on earth do you motivate yourself after that? Because you at that point when you go in at halftime, having played nearly the perfect game and you're losing due to no fault of your own, to motivate yourself to go back out there again, and all you're thinking is presumably, well, if we if we get something that feels like a stonewall penalty, or if they get someone goes down pretty softly in our area, you just feel like it's going to be given. And you think, what's the point? Yeah, yeah, no, I totally echo that. And City only had four shots on target in open play throughout the whole game. Hats off to Fulham in this performance. It was not a 5-1 defeat performance at all. And I think everyone, you know, people who didn't watch the game will see that scoreline and think, oh yeah, Fulham got stuffed. But very different um, story. Can, Can I just add one other thing about Tony Harrington, the VAR official, who I did some... His his name rang a bell and I looked into him this morning and just to list off some things he's done. So he was the VAR official for our game against Liverpool away last season when Darwin Nunes threw himself over in the box and VAR didn't think it was worth looking at what was a clear and obvious dive. He... Also last season was VAR for a game between Newcastle and Wolves where Wolves, Raul Jimenez actually, had a stonewall penalty denied on field. He decided it wasn't worth looking at and later there was an official apology given to Wolves. So that's two clear screw-ups in in the matter of months last season. And then before that, he was part of a refereeing team in a Newcastle-Burton game, which was pretty nondescript. But Newcastle had a penalty that was ruled out the the goal because Dwight Gale was encroaching. Instead of retaking the penalty, as everyone knows the law is, if there's encroaching, they just disallowed the goal completely and Burton played on. So this guy just clearly isn't fit to be a referee. He has been, he's had official apologies issued against his decisions where he's had multiple camera angles to look at it. And he's also been removed from being able to referee for a matter of weeks for not understanding the rules. Uh, like How he can possibly be in charge of Premier League games is beyond me. Do you think we'll be receiving an official apology for yesterday? Of course. Of course we will. Because like, there's not a single person who has said that that decision was right. You know, Mike Dean on the telly said it was wrong, as Dom said. We've had that referee support charity online. They've been saying that it was a wrong decision. Every single footballer, pundit, opposition player has said it was offside. We're going to get an apology, but who gives a toss? It doesn't make a difference, does it? Yeah. It's a shame we don't get a bonus point with that. That would be <laughs> nice, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. We'd be top of the league if we were getting bonus points for apologies, Coops. <laughs> Paul, I mean, let's try and come on to some positives. You mentioned you're impressed with Anthony Robinson's performance. Did anyone else stand out to you? Uh, yeah. Um, I, 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 the jury's slightly out with me with Jimenez. I mean, I mean he, he does some really good things in a game. Always nearly scores with some weird bicycle kick or whatever. And I thought his, his work... Um, for setting up um, Harris for that shot, who should have done better, was was sublime in the second half. I thought Wilson did. I mean, I thought our counter-attacks, we looked really, really dangerous. And um, um, and we should have... There was one when he was up there with Pauline, uh, with um, 
uh, who was it? Um, I get muddled because of their haircuts now. Pereira. Um, Pereira. Pereira, that was right. And Pereira had to make a two-yard pass, and he topped it up. And we we had some yeah. great, we had some great, um, you know, be better chances than they did. Um, we had some absolutely golden edge chances. So, yeah, I think probably Wilson um, and Robinson were probably my two. I think, and and I thought Reed battled away well as well, considering that he's not played that role very often recently you know the, the holding role I th thought he did well yeah no I'd agree I thought um Harrison Reed who <laughs> nearly left us for Wolves or well, I don't know how close that came but I mean the, the fact that Fulham were even considering an offer for that I don't know whether we just I think we rejected it straight up I think there would have been a collective head loss from the entire fan base if that had gone through Dom Paul mentioned uh, it was nice to see Luke Harris get a run out obviously unfortunate the circumstances in which he was introduced with Tom Kearney going off we're unaware about the extent of that injury um, at the moment but um, we'll update on Fulhamish as soon as we hear anything I mean huge opportunity for the lad how do you think he fared yeah, I think if you're looking at both his performances this week, uh, when he came on against Spurs in the Cup and when he played yesterday, I thought he he didn't look out of place. Um, I think, and I think he's showing why why maybe Marco Silva hasn't didn't send him out on loan. I think Marco Silva sees him as part of this squad mainly because there is there is not much depth in in this midfield as we've got on got onto, but he hasn't looked out of place. And I think it's nice to see the young. Some, to some young youngsters get getting a chance because we often we see them doing so well for the under twenty threes and then never really get the chance. Like I'm looking at Stansfield at Birmingham at the moment. I was like, well, why have we let him go? <laughs> like he's he's scoring he's scoring goals is fun. But I said, yeah, Luke Harris. I thought played well yesterday. I don't obviously we'll get on to second half performance, but I just feel like the players were probably so demotivated after what happened just before the halftime whistle. Like. <laughs> You can't really look too much in second half. Yes, it's lapses of concentration for the goals, but yeah, if it, staying on Luke Harris, yeah, I thought he was he didn't look out of place, especially as he was playing the treble winners yesterday. Yeah, supposedly Luke Harris was set to go out on loan to Exeter City and all the paperwork had been done, but Fulham pulled out a quarter to 11, 50 minutes before the window shut because we hadn't signed anyone <laughs> and we, we needed him. I mean, like... We'll come on to transfers in part two because I'm sure everyone's got a lot to say about it. But well done to Luke. I hope that you get more minutes and uh, valiant effort in, I mean, like without a doubt, the toughest situation that you can possibly be thrown into. So um, you, you did add admirably. Dan, I just want to talk about the second half, the penalty, the Diop penalty um, against Alvarez. I mean, to me, I think it looks pretty light, but the commentators seem to think that it was pretty clear I mean, what's, what's your take on it? My opinion is it's like, okay, right, I can see why it's a penalty. I'm not I'm not that upset about it. Sort of clumsy from Diop, I guess. Yeah, it, I mean, it is, it's like an element of soft in it, but he puts two hands on Alvarez's back and that's stupid. And he, it's unnecessary to an extent as well because actually Kelly Tete, he doesn't put in a great challenge, but it sort of slows Alvarez up who, who tries to go round him and... I don't know why it has made that decision. It was just an element of panic. It's soft, but I think it is a penalty. It, it, I think it does highlight one of the issues with with Issa, who 
for you know if we played how many minutes of football say 100 minutes for 98 of those minutes he was brilliant but he, he read the game really well him and Tim Ream worked really well together there was a couple of moments when it looked like Harlem was getting away from him and he would uh, put in a last it challenge he'd read the pass he'd win the header but outside there's always two minutes in a game where Issa just switches off and like it happens for the first goal where Harland runs round the side of him and, and sort of blindsides him. It happens again for the third goal, I believe. And then it the penalty, he is is just, you know, unaware of what's going on. And it's and then makes it a clumsy decision. So I just think there are moments in games where Issa switches off and it can be costly. And it's such a shame because outside of those moments, he is a very, very good centre back. And if, if we can cut those out of his game, then, then then fantastic. But it just, you always feel like you've got a moment with Issa. Always feels like he's got something in him, like a little wild card mistake. And it's a shame, as you said, because I agree with you. I think he did play fantastically apart from those moments of concentrate, lapse of concentration. But I mean, how costly do those moments sort of tally up to become? Paul, I think that penalty from Haaland was one of the most confidently struck penalties I've ever seen in my life. It's just, you just knew that that was going to make the net bulge the second he was over it. I mean, do you think there's an element of, I mean, how he's the best striker in the world at the moment. How, how do you even begin to try and nullify that threat? Yeah. He's, he's an utter freak, isn't he? Uh, I, I saw something about what he kind of eats and what he does. I mean, he's he's just like a machine, isn't he? I mean, is he actually real? Is he a bloody robot or something? I mean, he's there's no one like him. I mean, it's uh, I just, I mean, the amount of goals he scored is, is, is just, you know, because we think it's a really good league and he's kind of come in and just completely dominated it isn't he you know and he'll have a bad game and score a hat trick well when does that yeah. happen with other strikers you know yeah he's yeah. he's something else um, what 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 does he eat on a daily basis by the way i can't yeah. remember but i think <laughs> i think he's kind of one of these that changes his blood every morning it's that side yeah. of thing, you know? <laughs> yeah someone that. else's blood you know just yeah. i don't know but it was kind of bizarre some of the stuff you i can't even remember i was kind of in shock and put the article down but yeah something about blood or something <laughs> blood transfusions or something for breakfast or something weird on, on the blood of his enemies yeah <laughs> That kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, he, he's just, he's just something else. It's kind of, so occasionally like when you're watching Fulham, if I think you're, you're witnessing when you have players like Haaland play against you. I remember feeling the same when I watched Cristiano Ronaldo come on um, against us at the cottage. Just like, okay, well this is going to be horrible, but from a football fan, at least try and appreciate the greatness that we're witnessing. What I do hate about it though, though Coops is playing City is the smugness of their team because I, I mean I they are exceptional they are one of the best footballing teams I have ever seen in my life and I, I I don't dislike them I actually really do like watching them play but they have this level of smugness about them where it's almost like your year sevens playing year elevens in the playground and like when that decision happened they sort of like I'll take the ball and kick off like piss off like we're better than you get on with it. And I, I hate that, that attitude because you do genuinely feel in that whole situation, you're just sort of screaming like, oh, it's not fair. It's not fair. And they're like, oh, we don't care. Like, play on. And it's just that horrible juggernaut that you have to turn up against where it's their ball. You know, they're three years older than you and the referee's one of their dads. It's like, it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, without 
sounding too much like that scene in Mike Bassett with the three cheers for the Mexicans. I mean, I thought like watching Foden play yesterday was just something to behold. It really made me excited for the next uh, England tournament because, I mean, what a player that guy is. He just creates time and time again in the tightest of spaces. It's just like, how are you doing that? But anyway, enough about City. I think we've uh, I think we've said enough about yesterday's 5-1. Onwards, onwards. Uh, Dan, how do you think Marco uh, should sort of like reset um, going into the to the international international break? I think actually the international break is perfect. You know, it, it, this is exactly what we need in a way. There's a lot of... It's a shame because <laughs> a week ago, I was on the quick take after Arsenal saying there's been a lot of bad feeling throughout the club in the recent weeks, but that result really puts us back in the right direction. And a week later, we're back in that same area of there's a lot of bad feeling around the club, but at least we've got a week and a half to get over it. You know, Polina going off on international duty, I think that's a good thing. Get him playing football, get him around other people who are happy to be playing for their country, get him away from Fulham for a period of time. Marco will keep some of that core unit who don't play international football. They'll work on things. And hopefully, I think that means going into that Luton game, there's some refreshed minds in there. The only annoying thing, of course, is that because we've got Americans in our team, they always seem to end up coming back about three hours before we play on a Saturday at three o'clock, um, which is not ideal. But otherwise, I think it's the cliche, but this is a good time for an international break. We need to step away from the chaos, take a reset, put behind us after this podcast, put behind us what's happened on transfer deadline day um, and the whole transfer window and actually realise that we've got, what, three, four months of this is our squad, this is our team, let's pick up the points that we need. We can reassess in January, but there's no point complaining about it now it's done. Yeah, yeah, onwards. Right, that'll do for part one. Don't go anywhere because we'll be back with an update of our chaotic transfer window, your questions and a tribute to our late ex-chairman, Mohamed Al-Fayed. Don't go anywhere. Hello, it's Sammy here. And this episode of Fulhamish is supported by NordVPN. Now, NordVPN is a way of watching sporting events, TV shows and films which aren't available where you are by switching your virtual location of your phone, tablet or laptop to a country which is particularly perfect for those 3pm kickoffs which aren't televised in the UK. And right now you can get an exclusive discount by going to nordvpn.com slash Fulhamish. Not only will you benefit from their already huge discount, but you'll also get an extra four months for free. You can use one account on up to six devices. Also, it's completely no risk thanks to Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. So to get that special rate plus four free months, go to nordvpn.com slash Fulhamish or hit the link in the description of this podcast. Welcome back. It's the Fulhamish podcast. I'm joined by Don Betts, Dan Cook and Paul Cooper. Right, we're going to start with what was a very frantic and nervous anxiety-inducing transfer deadline day. I mean, Paul, do you pay much kind of attention to these transfers? Are you following them throughout the window? Are you, you know, getting live updates from Fabrizio Romano about whether uh, Paulinia likes the water pressure in the Bayern Munich changing rooms? Are you, or do you just kind of wait to see what unfolds? Oh, I, I follow it all the way through. And my God, how many players were we linked with? You know, breaking news on Instagram and whatever. Um, funnily enough, I, um, a while, a few months ago, I met Alan Clark at a charity dinner. And he said how much he loved Fulham, 
and what a warm atmosphere, um, friendly club. He said the only reason I left was their ambition didn't uh, match mine. So that was back in the 60s. Um, and by the way, we're, um, we're twinning an Alan Clark um, peace pitch in the Midlands with, with our charity in, in, uh, in Belgium, uh, you know, site of the Christmas truce and the whatever. Um, and I think that that's been the case. The last couple of years, we, we look as if we've been ambitious, but, you know, that kind of thread has kept going, you know, year after year that we've, you know, how many times have we seem to be lacking ambition? in the transfer market. Um, yeah, followed it religiously. Wasn't, I'm, I mean, I was expecting a striker. Um, I mean, we you know we're talking about Haaland and, and we haven't, you know, we've got a guy that hasn't scored for how many games, you know, 26, the, 26 games. And I don't know, you know, Rimenez is, um, I want to see him. I want to see him get a tap in like, you know, perhaps Reem can teach him some lessons. Uh, because I don't know, he's got to score some goals. Where are the goals going to come from? So that that's my main, you know, my main issue. Yeah, the thing that frustrates me about that is that we've had we've known about Mitro's exit for so long now. It went on forever, and it was inevitable. And how you can't have? I remember when we signed um, Jimenez, we were like, okay, well, great, brilliant squad player, but that's that's not the replacement, surely. Nah, can't be. But then it turns out that, um, yeah, that, that that is very much the case. The, the thing that I think wound most Fulham fans up was the Jao Palinia situation. So our best player, arguably our best player, to be allowed to exit for what was rumoured to be around, it was in the region of kind of just shy of 60 million, right? That is not enough at all. For how much he means to this squad, we need to be looking at like I think we turned West Ham down for more than that earlier in the window. Yeah, I'm Why? pretty sure it was either the same fee or maybe even more than we rejected from West Ham's bids. So I don't see why he would have left for that fee on deadline day, which it just didn't really make any sense to me because all the rumours you were hearing was he's going for nothing less than eighty million, and then. Then there was the rumours that basically, what was it? Mark Silver only wanted Scott McTominay <laughs> and yeah. no one else as the replacement. So, and then when that didn't happen, obviously the German, I feel like the German window was open as late as ours. The transfer might have happened, but just because it closed in the middle of the afternoon, it sort of, it sort of tried to rush things and we were never going to get Scott McTominay in time. So yeah, deadline day, I think was just one massive frustration for every film fan. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was a massive balls up. And to think that what it seemed like to me was obviously the, and it was rep widely reported that Fulham would let Paulinia go on the proviso that we ourselves signed a replacement. And it kind of seems to me as if, I don't know, Tony Khan or the team were like, yeah, yeah, no, no, we're, oh, we're looking, we're looking really hard. Yeah, oh, um, hang on, someone get Man United on the phone. Oh, no, can't get Scott, that's a shame. Yeah, afraid you're going to have to stay with us. It was. It almost seemed like lip service, like they were sort of trying but not really trying, which doesn't help anyone. Like everyone's just feeling really unsettled. There were wide reports that um, Paulini had a, had a big bust up with with Silver and Boamorte uh, before, like in the build up to all this. It, it, he's so important to this team. Unless you're getting an astronomical fee, which is like disproportionate, like 
crazy. The fact that we were even considering that move to me is unforgivable. Dan, how, how did how, what's your what's your tuppence on this? But I, I think if we were a serious footballing operation, you set a deadline on Polina, and that might be two weeks, that might be a month, it might be a month and a half, where that distance out from the end of the transfer window, he is not for sale for any price, barring something ludicrous, because you simply do not have time to replace what he brings to this team with the amount of money that we get for him. And this is what teams do, right? You know, they they set a deadline. They say, right, if you want him, you are stumping up this amount of money by this day. And that's two weeks out from deadline day. Because then we've got two weeks to actually sort ourselves out. Well, the whole hurricane situation, Spurs yeah. were like, he needs to be gone if he's going by the start of the Premier League season so we can move on. Yeah. And, and, and the fact that we considered this a day out from deadline day is like, I think it's disgusting. I think to look at how we are run as a club, Marco Silva, and quite rightly is and must be fuming because you you do not run a club like this. I refuse to believe that Marco Silva was the person who said to Polina, yes, you can get on that plane. His first thing would have been we've received this offer I'm not accepting it and I there is no way that decision didn't come from upstairs because simply Marco Silva does not make that just does not sanction that transfer and you know I think now is a pretty good time to get into the fact that Tony Khan wasn't even in the sodding country in the last 24 hours of deadline day I mean what a joke how can you not be here on the biggest day of the window you are our director of football. And that's why we ended up with Alex Awobi and someone we rang 10 minutes before the deadline closed to ask if he wanted to come in at left back to play as a backup on loan. I mean, it is frankly ludicrous. And I feel really bad for Joao because he didn't, like, as if we go on a personal level, as he's a human being and we have sent him on a plane to get what he could be his dream move. And if our tactic was to pretend we were looking for a replacement, We've really screwed him over, like emotionally. He sat in Munich all day thinking he's signing for Bayern. And Tony Khan, as you say, has probably texted Eric Ten Hag and gone, fancy selling Scott? And he's gone, nah, not really. And then, <laughs> and we've gone after Sofian Amrabat, apparently, who was, who's gone to Manchester United as if we thought we could compete with Manchester United. Like, I just, like, we've put a player through an unnecessary ringer there where it would have been a lot better emotionally for him if we'd have just rejected the bid initially. And he could have thrown his toys out the pram a little bit and said, well, I really wanted that move. And you say, well, we can discuss it next window or next season. But frankly, right now, we can't afford to lose you. And the fact that we've chosen like the worst option out of everything is incredible and speaks a lot to how much of a joke we are operationally. We're laughing stock. Yeah. A director of football for a Premier League football team is a full-time job. Like how anyone can comprehend that it isn't. Where was where was Tony Khan? Was he in the States? Yeah, he was he was he was spotted like a few hours into the next day doing a press conference for AEW. Oh, you cannot be serious. I mean, to me something's not, something is up. It's it's a really worrying time for us, and I feel like we're falling into this pattern of three year cycles with Fulham. You know, we'll get a good manager, be three years, and then they'll reach the end of the step because I cannot. They'll be like, I cannot deal with the way that this club is run. It's happened with Slav. It's happening with Marco Silva. I mean, Paul, what 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 is happening right now? Do you think potentially the Cans might be selling? Because it, it certainly feels like that is a possibility with the lack of ambition and drive that was shown in this transfer window. 
Yeah, I, I definitely think so. When you consider last year, and we very nearly, you know, had our top Premiership kind of finish. Um, yeah, I, I think they're definitely kind of selling it. Just quickly going back to Polina, I'm not quite sure which was the major driving force going to Bayern Munich or escaping Vinius's um, uh, his practical jokes. Because every time <laughs> I've seen a video, <laughs> Polina has been the butt of it. And they've suddenly stopped. And I, I have this theory that I was talking with, with Charlie that he said, look, if you don't get rid of, you know, uh, Vinius, we'll, we'll, um, I, I'm going to leave. So, because all the practical jokes are really dull, I'd be fucking annoyed. He comes across <laughs> as a bit of a dickhead, to be perfectly honest. So, that's why it's not bad. That's why, that's yes. why Vinny can't get a game. <laughs> Palin is like me or, me or Vinny there was one really funny one I saw where I think like Vinicius had put on Palini's shoes <laughs> he's wearing these kind of like suede like brown suede kind of winkle picker Chelsea boots and Vinicius comes <laughs> comes sort of like tap dancing into the middle of the dressing room and uh, like everyone's fooling about laughing and Palini is there like oh this guy's such a dick <laughs> but yeah <laughs> I just thought perhaps he's so fucking pissed off every coach trip. Ah, look at me. You know. There's a part of me that does feel bad, as you alluded to, um, for Polini, because he really got put through the ringer there. But I just pray that Marco can get him back on side. And I, I hope from what everything that we've seen with Paulini, he's not the sort of player who will, you know, give anything under 100%. And I mean, that's that's all we can hope for at the moment in this. Um, I think as soon as he gets on that pitch, he just switches on whatever else is happening. Yeah, you know, he's a consummate professional, and yeah, and, and yeah, he'll he'll do the business, I'm sure. Yeah, can, right. Can we did. Can we just 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 before we move on, can we go back to Tony Carton quickly? Yeah, just like as as a as a four, because he has had praise and criticism over the past however many years he's been our director of football, and some of the praise has been warranted, and some of the criticism is warranted. You know, he's signed some fantastic players. We have also signed players in that period of time who he might have been wrongly credited for signing. You know, you look at players like Mitrovic, that's definitely, that was a Slav signing. You look at Polina, I reckon that was a Marco Silva signing. And then he's had the criticisms, of course. It's a part, it's a part-time job for him, which is mental. He has screwed up in the transfer market many times. We have not got value out of it. We have waited too late to make signings. I think this transfer window has to be the final straw for Fulham fans. I honestly think it's at the point where we need to say something. And not, not just, you know, tweeting at him. I think we need to make a stand because I, I, I've said it, I said it yesterday. How many, how far down the pyramid do you have to go to find a part-time director of football? You know, this is like one of the most coveted positions in football now. If you look at Newcastle approaching directors of football from other Premier League clubs because they see that as such an important role. And yeah. we've got a guy who isn't in the country for the majority of the transfer window. We've got to do something because this is not okay. And and also we're in competition with the, the two people I think have really got it together, uh, Brighton and, and dare I say it, Brentford. Um, mm. You know, and the two and the two chairmen were, you know, had a had the same company, and um, the Brighton setup with what Tony Bloom is doing. Um, I know that setup, and I've been there several times. And what they're doing, they've got all, you know, Oxbridge graduates there, hundreds of them, you know, doing the algorithms, etc., the, the betting and whatever. 
And it's not just it's not just the players, great players they're getting in, it's the managers, you know. And 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 we're competing with them with yeah, this part time guy who knows nothing about football. It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and we'll never get above them until we really, you know, until we really have a sort out. But I mean, I've been moaning about Tony Khan since I feel like this podcast started <laughs> back in like 2017. So I've I've never thought he's been good enough. Uh, I thought this transfer window, I don't. Apart from up front, I don't think we necessarily got worse. But I always felt this was a transfer window we could really build on. And this was a time to push on. If if you look what Forrest have done, if you look what Bournemouth have done in this transfer window, we should have been doing similar business, and we simply haven't. We've sort of we've stood still, and we're only going to regress. I feel like this season instead of improve. Yeah. But with, yeah. I mean, people people are paying three grand for a ticket in the Riverside. Where is that money going? Where are these hundred pounds a game ticket? going because we had a net spend of about 11 million pounds that is bonkers like how can that possibly happen i think this like we've had all of these problems with tony card in the operation but this is the first time it's i think it's been a total disgrace the best point this club has been in during their tenure like we are in the best position we've been after they have screwed up many a time they've got ourselves and not it's not through them it's through marco silva and, and a good squad we've got ourselves into a fantastic position and we have just thrown it all away and we've put ourselves in the position where we're going to lose our best manager since roy we're going to lose our best player since musa dembele and he's going to kick up a stink in january probably and, and next summer he'll definitely go if it's not in january and i don't know how we've ended up in this situation well, I don't ever feel like it's been their main priority since they've come to the club 10 years ago. Because it was the Jags when he first arrived, then it's been really wrestling in the last sort of like, I don't know, three years. So I just want an owner who cares about the club, <laughs> like instead of it just being another one of their businesses. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly the way it feels at the minute. Um, anyway, let's get on to the people that did come through the door. So um, Alex Awobi, uh, despite arriving at the club at 11 a.m. in the morning, uh, seemingly was only confirmed until after the window had shut. I mean, that must have been a pretty exhausting long medical. Uh, Rumour has it he's so fit that he was doing a bleep test entirely from 11 o'clock until 11 o'clock. But... Dom, how do you feel about this signing? It's divided opinions. My uh, good mate, Barry, who's an Everton fan, says that he's um, a very, at times, frustrating player, but incredibly hardworking, lovable. And if you put him in the centre of the park, can be incredibly effective, less so on the wings. I'm all for it. I've always been a bit of an admirer. I enjoy watching him play. And I think that he's a, he seems to be a really good bloke who will fit in with the dressing room. What was your, what was your take when you saw that we were getting him? I've no issue with the signing of Alex Awobi itself. I just have I just don't really understand why we just randomly paid twenty two million or whatever it is for him when we were when we were haggling over Hudson Adoy for the entirety of the transfer window. Seemingly same with Damari Gray and sort of other players we were linked with. Like I, I like the signing of Awobi because he's, he's obviously his first starting play at wide and play through the middle, but I just don't get why we randomly played twenty million here when we've been haggling over transfers fees the entire transfer window. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a valid point. Dan, anything I, to I, add? I do think there is an element that we are. You're going to have to slightly overpay for him because we have made a, a relegate. I say relegation rival. I do think fundamentally that we're a lot better than Everton. But there's the there's the chance we can always be dragged into this, right? And we've made Everton weaker. I I, I cannot believe 
they were actually willing to let him go. I'm really surprised by that. Sean Dyche came out and said he didn't want him to go, but Iwobi had made his mind up. And he won their Players' Player of the Year last year. And is a large reason why they didn't get relegated. And I think he brings something to this team that we didn't have prior. Someone who can play in the middle and really drive us upfield with his ball-carrying ability. And that's a, a player that, probably we haven't had since maybe like a, an Anguissa, someone who is is that technically proficient with a ball at their feet where they will bring you upfield through presses and drive you forward. And I think that's great. And I think it's interesting to see where he slots into this team. I think probably where I'd maybe like to see him most is, is challenging Andreas Pereira because Andreas blows so hot and cold at times that the fact that there isn't a, there hasn't been a viable backup or a person com- competing for that position has led to mean that we've had to sometimes just be frustrated by Andreas when he's having his bad games or his bad runs. And so the fact that you've now got Alex Awobi competing to, to be a part of that midfield three, I think is is a, a positive. I am surprised though, as Don says about the fee, but I don't think it's the worst value in the world. He's in his prime at the moment, but I am also surprised because it's probably not the most important position that we needed to fill. Which is also surprising. Like there are, there are other. Like I would much rather have got someone who could be back up to Polinia, because I think that's where we're, we're lacking more than a an advanced player. But the fact that he can play on the wing as well probably means that we've killed two birds with one stone with that signing, effectively. Yeah, I'm his versatile. We'll see how it all pans out. Uh, just a quick word on Balatore, uh, the left back who we signed on loan. Um, I mean, seemingly Paul, good, good. Good competition for Robinson, bit of squad rotation. Yeah, I guess, I guess so. Not a particular position that I thought was we were screaming for because, um, you know, obviously uh, Reem can play there, um, but, um, uh, and Bassey, but um, yeah, you know, it's, it's better than we had last season. So yeah, good. Right. Moving on. So to, <laughs> Compound the frustrations of our, our current ownership. On Friday, we were told the sad news that Mohammed Al Fayed, our previous chairman, had passed away at the age of 94. Al Fayed was just a larger than life character. Um, Drew wrote in his tribute to him a man whose personality was so big, whose presence was so unmissable that you thought he'd never die. But sadly, we bid farewell to the man who took us from the third tier of English football straight to the top. Chairman Mo passes more than two decades after our maiden Premier League campaign. He famously pledged to take us there in five years and completed that mission in four. And we stayed there for 13 years. He was our owner and chairman for 12 of those. When he took over the club, he promised to turn Fulham into the Manchester United of the South. Not sure we ever quite got there, but we came pretty damn close, all all factors considered. I was a lot more affected by this news than I thought I would be. And I think that that was because I realised that Mohamed Al-Fayed was arguably single-handedly responsible for so many memories, relationships that you form at Fulham. I wouldn't have supported Fulham if it were not for the cheap season tickets and tickets that were available to Fulham at the time. I probably would have ended up supporting someone like Wimbledon, you know, because we wouldn't have been able to afford to have gone to. It was like £120 for a season ticket or something when I was 14 years old. I mean, obviously, he's not without his controversies. He's a very divisive figure, but undeniably just 
a character, like an eccentric Egyptian billionaire, characters that you don't often get these days much and just a real football lover and he cared about the club he loved it he was there every single game swinging his scarf around doing a lap of honour before each game I mean Dom how did you react to the the news that he passed yeah it was it's sort of it sort of it was sort of bubbling and then everyone was sort of waiting for like a really reptile sore to sort of start reporting it but yeah it was really sad really because yeah, a bit like you is the reason I support Fulham. Uh, they Fulham did the tray, the football coaching at my school, and got cheap tickets through that way, and then ended up getting seen to get that way because neither my parents are from London. So, but they they obviously are my, one of my nearest teams, and it's sort of if you I start sort of started going when Fulham sort of just got into the Premier League under Al Fired, and I sort of I was just sort of going because it was an, a local team to go to. Then I now I end up following home and away every single week and. Yeah, it hit me more, like you said, George, it hit me more than I was ex- expecting, just sort of thinking where we were to where we got to. I mean, it just, I think everyone sort of just started reminiscing about the Europa League one in 09-10, really, and the great escape in 07-08 when we finished seventh. I think those sort of three scenes, everyone sort of started reminiscing about just because we were talking about it in the pub before the game yesterday, just who we played on that Europa League run, you know, Roma, Basel and Cisco Sphere in the group, then you, you're thinking the holders in Shakhtar Donetsk, who some people say still is the best team people have seen play at Craven Cottage. You've got Juventus, you've got the German champions at the time, which are Wolfsburg and Hamburg, obviously, who are hosting the final. So I think, I think everyone sort of just started looking back and realising how many good moments Southwell gave so many fans. Paul, what what are your uh, sort of prominent memories of, of Mohamed Al Fayed when you think of him and Fulham Football Club and your time supporting the team? Yeah, I mean, I, he's an absolute legend, you know, and and a great character. But I think what he's done, which the Khans haven't done, is that he's had those strategies, you know, strategies that worked in business, and he used that acumen, you know, for for Fulham Football Club. And I don't see that happening, you know, with the Khans, you know, you know, I mean, if, if you ran a business like they did and obviously they've been very successful, it it probably wouldn't survive, but I think he, he, he just made very good decisions and, you know, the new regime don't make good decisions, you know, and we've had some great managers and great times under him. Uh, And I suppose Charlie asked me to take, take him up to see Fulham about 17 years ago when he was about 13, 13, 14. And um, that was his era and just fell in love with the club. Just wonderful. You know, once you've been to Fulham, there's, there's no one else, you know, and mm. uh, he made that happen. You know, got the best yeah. years. He had the best years, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I think for so many people of you know, our generation to, to have your kind of formative football supporting years, to be those years there's, there's as you said the hook's in there's no nowhere actually going to go is there I think a lot of people actually kind of or even a lot of people are sort of took it for granted when we had those mediocrity in the championship because we sort of just grew up with us being a staple in the Premier League getting into Europe two or three times and I think I think on Friday everyone sort of yeah just sort of was looking back and realising just how good the Alpha ideas were yeah, yeah uh, totally totally echoing like, and, and it wasn't like he wasn't perfect but you know he is the reason why I'm a Fulham fan like like other people here I didn't come from a Fulham supporting family I'm the first Fulham fan in the family but even 
you know, my dad took me along because of the the offers that, that Fulham had and, you know, the one pound tickets. And as a 50, 55 year old man who had supported Liverpool all his life, even he fell in love with Fulham. You know, you, you turn up to that ground and it is just special. And yeah, my memories will always be Chairman Mo swinging that scarf above his head. Like that is my, my formative football years. And that, 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 those times will always be amazing. There's nothing better as, as a kid at that point. You're thinking back to those Fulham teams and, you know, the, the good, the bad. It was just such a, a special time. And, and you it felt such, so much more of a connection with the club. And, and we have, yeah. over time, and I think it, that hasn't lived with the Cairns. There hasn't been that connection. I think we've had connections with the managers and the connection with the players, but not with the club as a whole. And that that's that feeling has has never been recaptured by this ownership. And I, one thing that I think highlighted that the most was that Fulham's official post on the website about Mo passing had to also include a little line about Shahid Khan. And I think that was such a shame and so typical of the establishment that we've become that in the moment when it was our time to pay respects to Mohammed Al-Fayed, we felt the need to speak about Shahid Khan in the same sentence. And it was just unnecessary. And I think yeah, everyone has just fond memories of Mo and we, we will miss him. Yeah, it was it was tone deaf. It, it really was. And the thing, he didn't, Mohammed Al-Fayed didn't treat fans like customers. I was talking to my dad about this and we still got all of our tickets from that Europa League run. Guess how much it was for an adult's ticket in the Putney end for Fulham versus Juventus, arguably the club's biggest game up until that point, a huge monumental European night under the cottage. Guess guess how much a ticket was? 20 quid. How much do you think a ticket would be if we were in that same situation today? Because I can tell you for sure, it's sure as hell, it would not be 20 quid. It's it's it was tw- it was twenty five to watch us play sodding Spurs in the second round of the Carabao Cup. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he wasn't perfect as we uh, spoke about. You know, at one point he did look to try and sell the cottage. Um, he left us not in the best shape when he did hand over to the Khans. Um, but I mean, his uh, where would we be Fulham Park Rangers if it if it wasn't for uh, if it wasn't for that man? And um, yeah. Rest in peace, Mo. Thank you for all of the, the fantastic memories. Um, we'll just do a couple of questions now before we uh, close up. Throw this one to you, Dom. Uh, any chance that Marco has said he will only honour his contract but not renew? And so the Khans are saving up the money to give to the new manager rather than fritter it on players who won't commit to a departing manager. I mean, I think there's probably an element of truth in that. Yeah, I'm, I've, I've sort of got to the stage where I... I can only see Silver at the club for this season. I just can't see him renewing his contract. And, you know, when that Saudi offer came in this summer, he kind of knows the Saudi the Saudi Pro League's not going anywhere. So if he really wanted that offer, we'll also be there in the summer. And I just I just feel like Silver's getting tired of the Khans. <laughs> I think he loves working at Fulham. I think he loves working in the Premier League. But I think he's getting sick and tired of the Khans. I mean... I was talking about this yesterday. David Moyes has got only got one year left, I believe. And it's also weird he's not renewed. So it wouldn't totally surprise me if he if he ended up at West Ham, if they have a if they have a good season. Because he's clearly 
working beyond his means, I feel like, at Fulham. He's, he's, he's done so well with us, seeing how well we, we did well in the Championship, finished 10th last season, didn't get back this summer. I just, I just yeah, I, I personally just can't see why Silver would renew. And he maybe got a point that maybe that's why the Khans didn't back him, but I feel like the Khans just seem disinterested in general as, we, as we've got onto. So, but yeah, I, I, I just can't see Silver signing a new deal unless the Khans promise to back him like they haven't really done this year's season, next season. I, th- I think it's the other way around. I, I think that Marco was told the, the, the funds that he'd have available this summer. Uh, and he said that, I imagine he would have said it wasn't good enough and, and would have been surprised as to why it was so little. And clearly we haven't seen the Mitrovic money reinvested. And so I, I think that he said, well, if that money's not going to be reinvested, then I don't think I can you know, continue at the end of my contract. And then the Khans have pulled maybe further funding out of it because they're like, well, if you're not going to be here next season, then we're not going to we're not even going to give you that amount of money. I can't like all it would take for Marco Silva to have renewed a contract in May or June was to sit him down and be like, right, Marco, here's a hundred million pounds. You've done fantastically. You've done better than anyone could have expected in your two years at this club, build the squad you need to stay and commit to a long-term project. And he would have renewed his contract. I have no doubts about that because if you gave him the tools at the start of this window to build the team that he wanted, this is the best manager we've had, as I said, since Roy Hodgson. We would have built a real competitive squad. I don't think we would. I think, you know, even even with losing Mitrovic, but I think even if, you know, if, if we'd have said to Alexander Mitrovic, look how much this squad is improving, maybe it's worth sticking around because we could do something special. I think there was a chance we could have kept him as well. So I, I, I think that really it's come from the place of the Khans not giving Marco what he needs and it's spiralled from there. Do you think there's a chance that Silver walks? I, I I am worried that if an attractive opportunity in the Premier League comes up this season, that there's a chance that he might jump ship. I don't think he walks away into nothing, but if there is a job offer that comes, or not even an offer, but a club that becomes available that has got funding, that is progressive and has a plan and you see a project that you can buy into, I wouldn't be surprised if Marco went for it. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, if if, if he's not, it, it, all signs are suggesting that he's going to be leaving at the end of the season. He wants to maintain his stock. So I just worry that he reaches the end of his tether and it's just like, I can't, you know, my, my stock's still high. I've got, you know, I'm a very attractive manager. Um, I'm I'm done. I'm done. I just hope that doesn't happen. Um, quick one for you, Paul. Um, if it all goes Pete's on with Paulinia after the transfer debacle and he has a strop, i.e. gets injured, in quote-unquote, is it mad to think that Bassi could cover in CDM to allow greater flexibility for our other midfield selections? If I mean, I don't think Paulinia, as we said earlier, I don't think Paulinia is the sort of player who would, um, who would go on strike, but would you be up for seeing Bassi as CDM? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, and I, I think the statistic, you know, obviously Polina, when we've played him, has, it's been, we had a completely different team this season. And I think it's uh, worrying that I'm pretty sure last season there was only two times we um, we lost by more than one goal. Well, we've, we've matched that already in, in four in four games. Um, you've got to have someone really strong there. I, yeah, I Bassy, let's give it a try. Yeah, just you want a bit of fun, you know. Let's let's do it. <laughs> and yeah, I, th- why I not? think 
the, the only worry is he maybe not being comfortable enough in possession. But from what we've seen with the ball at his feet, I think Calvin Bassey has done well at buying into our playing out of the back system. It's what he struggled with it at Ajax from from all accounts. But you know, Ajax's brand of football <laughs> is different to Fulham's. You know, that is a real that the philosophy that runs through that club is 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 strong, and and that's a, a different level of playing out from the back. But if you're looking for a midfield enforcer. I, I can think of worse options. Yeah, who knows? Who knows what we'll see? But um, anyway, I think we've uh, gibbered on for long enough. So uh, thank you very much, gentlemen, for dissecting the uh, the week's events at the World of Fulham Football Club. Um, all that's left to do is to name this podcast. Dan, what, what, what are you going to go for? Uh, at, at the risk of, of Fulhamish bias, but I think I do have to give it to our own Farrell Monk with VAR City Blues. I think it was very good. We'll be back on Thursday, so uh, stick around to them, but I hope you have a lovely week. Thank you very much for your time, Mr. Paul Cooper. Thank you. <laughs> Dom, pleasure to see you as always, mate. As always, mate. And uh, yeah, take care, Dan. Thanks for having me, Coops. Have a good week. Come on, you whites. Right.